Welcome to Staying Connected, the podcast series produced by the German Embassy in London. My name is Gabi Biesinger. I am a German journalist based in London as one of the correspondents for ARD Public Broadcasting in Germany. I'm really humbled to introduce two very special guests today, Maria Old and Kurt Marx. Welcome, Maria. Thank you. And welcome, Kurt. Good morning. And I think I'm allowed to say both of you have passed the age of 95, which makes it an even greater gift that you could make your way to the German embassy today and that we can talk. You are going to tell us about a journey both of you took in 1939, which saved your lives. You are two of round about 10,000 Jewish children from Germany and other countries who came to Britain with a so-called Kindertransport. Let me briefly explain what this refers to. These journeys for Jewish children from mainly Germany to Britain were organized just after the devastating Reichspogromnacht in November 1938. A delegation of British, Jewish and Quaker leaders appealed to the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain to permit the temporary admission of unaccompanied Jewish children without their parents. The British Parliament granted the corresponding bill and only weeks later, on December 2nd, 1938, the first party of almost 200 children arrived in Britain. Before we turn to your personal stories, Maria and Kurt, let's briefly listen to Michael Newman from the Association of Jewish Refugees, the national charity supporting Holocaust refugees and survivors living in Great Britain. Michael will give us some further details on what was behind the Kindertransport. Hello, my name is Michael Newman. I'm the chief executive of the Association of Jewish Refugees, the AJR, founded in 1941 by the refugees who fled Nazi oppression from Central Europe, so mostly from Germany and Austria, although there were also Czechoslovaks. Well, just to contextualize the story of the Kindertransport, we're talking about the rescue the salvation of around 10,000 and mostly Jewish, they were not all, but mostly Jewish children. Of course, this has to be put into context of one and a half million Jewish children who perished in the Holocaust, in the Shoah. And also, as much of a, as this was a enormous rescue act and a unique rescue act, it provided sanctuary for the child refugees, not their families. So each kint had to be guaranteed for, so the families who took them in, the foster families, had to pay a guarantee of £50. And in many cases they were taken in by families that had been made aware of the plight of the, uh, the Jewish refugees and they wanted to do their bit to help. And without any familial or religious connection, uh, opened their doors and gave them a home, gave them shelter. So, Kurt. You were born in Cologne in 1925, and it was the head teacher of the Jewish Reform Real Gymnasium Javne who organized the transport for 40 children in January 1939, and you were one of them. You were 13 years old. How do you remember this moment to leave behind your parents and traveling into the unknown? Yes, I do. I do remember. Uh, we had Kristallnacht went to school on that morning of Kristallnacht and when the school was, it seemed to be burning, actually the school wasn't alight, but there was a synagogue next to the school which had been set alight. This started all this idea of kindertransport. 
our headmaster, Dr. Erich Gilbanski, he decided, or he tried anyway, to bring the whole school to England. Unfortunately, he didn't quite succeed, he, but he actually succeeded with to bring 130 of us to England in various groups. I was in the youngest group. Reason why they chose us was, quite, was the only reason was that we had learned some English. That's why we were picked. And we came in January 39, we came to, to London. It was if one considers that Kristallnacht was November 1938, in a matter of two months, he managed to organize uh, people in England to receive us, also to persuade the parents to let their children go to England. Because in general, people said, no, the children stay at home, we will stay together, we're not going to be parted. But luckily, my parents decided, yes, I could join. So 20 of the boys in our class, in fact, came to England. Also, the parallel class of the girls, 20, about 20 girls. And we came on the 18th, I seem to remember, of January 1939. We came to London. In our case, the Jewish community in Cricklewood were our sponsors. They created, they had created a hostel for us, so we, all the boys were together, which was much easier for us to be together. We knew each other. But the actual journey to England was not traumatic. It was, it was not a parting of our parents. We were not going to go away. We were going temporarily to England, and they would I had already applied to go to America and they were just waiting to get their certificate or their permission to go because the German, the Americans had a quota of people they would allow in. So that's what happened. So we went to England waiting to go to America. Of course, this never happened. War broke out and so on. So it sounds a little bit like a school trip in the first it was place. Like a, it was a school trip at that stage anyway. We were, we were boys together, we were friends together, we, were, we had fun together, we played football together, we were a, a group. And at this stage in the game, I think I'm the only one who's still here to tell the story because everybody else is gone. Maria, you were born in 1926 and left your family as a 12-year-old girl, traveling together with your younger sister Birgit from Hamburg. How do you remember this moment? Yes, we didn't really know anything about Jewish religion or anything like that. I had a very privileged upbringing. Um, and then we were told one day that we would be sent to England because my father was Jewish. And we just accepted it as a 12-year-old. And we came to um, Harwich uh, with uh, a Quaker lady, Elizabeth Howard, who, um, who brought us over because somehow or other my father had managed to contact her. And so we were lucky that we didn't come with, uh, with a, a hundred like my, my poor brother did. Our guardians, 
where was the Congregational Minister in Beckenham. Now this was a bit different because they weren't Jewish and they didn't really particularly want us to follow that religion. I didn't really realise that I wasn't going to see my parents for seven years, which was a hard time, because I was used a lot by, not my guardians, but when I was evacuated, I was used as a maid, I wasn't fed properly, I was hit. It was not nice, but um, I've got over it. <laughs> yes, and then um, we stayed there until my parents came over in uh, 1945. Um, again, that was very lucky because uh, someone knew Lord Mountbatten and he, Lord Mountbatten actually uh, managed to get my parents over from Sweden where my mother had also, she did actually also go there with uh, the help of Goering but um, it, it, it's uh, quite a complicated story, but um, that's, how, that's how it happened. How did I feel? The very first night, it, it, I laugh about it now, but we had been used to a big, nice supper. And you know, the people that brought us up, my guardians in Beckenham, they, they hadn't really got the money to give us all the privileged upbringing that I'd had. And we were given fish sandwiches for, for, for supper. And both my sister and I looked at each other and we then, it hit us. We went upstairs and cried in each other's arms because of the fish sandwiches, but I'm sure it was because of my, my because I was so homesick. I, I was very, I had to be very, very careful because I was German had to be careful, we weren't allowed to speak English, which was fine, and in six months I, I learned the language. My guardians, my own guardians were very strict, but very kind, but when I was evacuated, as I said, it was just horrific. You had there an interesting teasing about your family. I think you need to tell us a little bit more about this story, how your mother um, escaped. Right. My mother was a famous opera singer in Hamburg. And um, she stayed behind to sell the house. When I say sell the house, they, they sort of gave it away. But she did store the furniture and it wasn't bombed. And um, it managed to come over to, uh, to England when they came. And she was called by the Gestapo one night and they put her under bright lights and said, you know you should be ashamed of yourself, you're German. Uh, we want you to divorce your husband, denounce your children. We will give you a good life. We want you to sing for the likes of Hitler and so on. And my mother just said, you can kill me now. If she hadn't have disappeared, which she did with Goering's help, which I will come to in a minute, she would have disappeared, that's for sure. Anyway, um, Yes, Goering was very fond of music and his wife apparently used to say to him, Hermann, don't, don't do this to the Jews. But he also had a brother who, who, who was very much against the, the, the way that the Gestapo treated people. And it could have been him 
that helped my mother and my and the conductor of Göring's um, orchestra. They were friends, and he wrote to my mother and said, "I'll take you with me." And Göring is doing it for us, and that's how they put them in a car, and that's how they were driven over to Denmark. When my mother then joined my father in Sweden, and they stayed there until the end of the war. Um, came over in a plane without any oxygen, because it was still the war, but helped by Mountbatten. Uh, and so we were, we were rejoined. It was very difficult for me to say, who am I going to be loyal to now? My guardians who brought me up, or my parents? My parents were strangers to me, and I still, think about it and talk about it. My sister and I have also talked about it. Why, why were we, what did we have to do? In fact, when I, when I came to, when I came to our hospital, I was a nurse. Our hospital was evacuated Durham because of the flying bombs. And I came back from, from Durham for, for, for leave. And when I saw my parents at the station, do you know I couldn't face them? I, w I went, I walked right the way around them. Why did I do that? I think about it ever so much, but I'm afraid it happened. You already told us that it was a bit difficult. Your guardians, you don't call them foster parents, but guardians, they, well, they sort of looked after you, but it was a strict and not very pleasant childhood. What was it with you? I think you made some not very kind experiences as well when you came here. Well, actually, my experience, it's interesting that we all came at the same time, more or less. We all have completely different experiences. We were in the hostel uh, a few months before the war. We eventually, after some intensive English instruction, we went to the local elementary school in Kilburn, which was what one would call today a sink school. It was horrendous. Uh, the building as such, an old Victorian building, I remember, narrow corridors with dark green tiled walls. It was very oppressive. But the school was a normal school and we were there for a few months. We soon integrated into the school society. And then, of course, war broke out, and all children from London, not all, but the majority, were evacuated into the country. So that was our second removal. By moving into the country, we were all separated. And I remember we arrived in Bedford, where we were evacuated to, with our rucksacks on our backs, and we marched through the town, And the teachers knocked on people's doors. They said, here are the evacuees, how many will you take? And people, first they took the girls, they picked all the girls, probably to help in the house. Yes. And when the girls were all gone, they only had the choice of boys. And one of the boys of, my, of the school, we were in the class together, we stuck together. And these good people, and these were terraced houses, back to back, very much working class, 
not trying to be conscious of the class, but they were hard-working people working in the local factory. You opened the front door, you were in the front room, that kind of house. There was no bathroom. The toilet was at the bottom of the garden. A complete culture shock, as far as that is concerned. But they were very kind, and they said, yes, we'll pick two of you. They picked two of us. So what happened? It was a small house which had three little bedrooms upstairs. Father had one bedroom. The daughter, who was 30 by then, had the other bedroom. And the mother, they had separate bedrooms. So the daughter moved into her mother's bed. And the boys, the two boys, we slept together in her bed. That was our first new experience. Our English was still not all that wonderful. And these people had, they lived in Bedford, which is 50 miles away from London. They had never been to London. London was a concept far away. So we had come from London, as far as they were concerned. They had no idea that we were actually Jewish, German refugees. But they were very nice, very kind. I stayed, I lived with them for several years. They'd never met a Jew before. You know, it was all strange for them. It was as strange for us as well. And how did you pick up the language? Did you experience it was difficult if you tried to speak German to your classmates or your siblings? We were told that we mustn't speak a word of German, which was right. It was only six months before the war started. But we did try because we were so homesick and crying with homesickness in our bedrooms. And we talked German then, found it very comforting. But um, they tell me that I learned the language in six months. Uh, and nobody ever knew, because when I was doing my, my nurse's training, um, if somebody had actually known, because I was naturalized when I was 19, yes, so I had to be, I had to be very, very, very careful, really. Um, and didn't really experience anything nasty from the English people. And to this day, I thank them. I don't hate anybody, whatever happened. Um, I tried to pay back, uh, tried to pay back Britain by becoming a volunteer as a civil defense member in when we had a Cold War with Russia and I do volunteer work in our church and I try just to say thank you and I do say thank you. You already mentioned you became a nurse. Yes. How did you pick this career? There were two things that German people, German girls could do. One to be a nurse and one to be a maid. And my guardian said, you're going to be a nurse and this is where you're going. And we, went, we I trained at Queen Mary's Hospital, which was an LCC, London County Council Hospital. And we had 1,200 children. So I'm a trained children's nurse, yes. When we were evacuated, our hospital was evacuated because we were being in, we were in the path of the flying bombs. And we were evacuated at Durham and we shared a military hospital. So whenever um, we could be spared, we went to help. And we did have one prisoner of war um, board and I was on there one day and these boys, it was towards the war. They were all little 15-year-old boys, soldiers. 
and I couldn't believe my eyes, some of them crying and so on. And so the nurse said, give this porridge to that one. And I did, and he went, nine, nine. And I said to the staff nurse, why won't he eat it? And he said, you've got to eat it for him because they'd been told that if they came to England, if they were prisoners of war, that their food would be poisoned. Mm. And I thought, how horrible. So I, I hated porridge, but I ate it. And how did you decide what to become or who decided for you? Decide? There was no question of deciding. When I was 15, normal elementary school is finished in this country. And when I was 15, I was told, you're 15, if you want to... Uh, up to that time, the, the people who took in evacuees got 12 shillings and sixpence per child per week. That was sufficient to feed a child and to take care of it. And uh, they said, well, if you want to eat, you have to work. So they said, what would you like to do? Well, I had an idea I was going to be an engineer, a bridge builder, you know, that kind of engineer. They said, oh, that's no problem. We'll get you a job in a factory. So I got this job in the factory. At that time, it was no problem to get work. War had broken out. The men were being called into the army. Anyway, I got this job in this engineering factory. At, uh, I don't know, I started at some early hour in the morning, 7.30 probably. Foreman came, told us what to do. There was another boy and myself. At 12 o'clock, it's lunchtime. And he said, the manager wants to see you. It was very quick, you know. I haven't been there for five minutes already. And this manager in that factory was like God Almighty. It was a huge factory. Anyway, the foreman took me to this office upstairs. It seemed a big office at the time. I can't remember whether it was or not. And he was sitting there and was a little bit embarrassed. Then he said, you can't work here. You're an enemy alien. You see, in the morning I was a Jewish refugee. Four hours later I was an enemy alien, which was quite a shock to me that I should become an enemy alien because there was a war. So I couldn't work there. It was my, my first experience as a workman. It wasn't difficult to find another job somewhere, you know, and eventually, fairly quickly in fact, I got another job. I was sort of an errand boy in the music shop and I would work in the, with the, uh, in the wireless repair shop. So I, I knew I had to learn something. I mean, that, I mean, I wasn't, I was well aware that whatever I did, I've got to get onto the ladder, do some, learn something. But very soon, all the men were called into the army. It was a large business. All girls, they sold records and radios and pianos and all musical instruments. It was quite an interesting business. So I was the only of the younger, the only man who was 15 years old. And there were some older people who were the old ones. The only thing that 
was of benefit. At that time, the, the BBC Symphony Orchestra was stationed in Bedford. And the music shop, this company I worked in, they distributed and sold the tickets to go and listen to the concerts. And the staff became ushers in the evening to show people to their seats. So it was one of the jobs I had to do once a week when we had a concert. So I learned to enjoy classical music. But then um, there was a small company in Bedford. There were refugees from Belgium. And they had, things were difficult. There were, had been diamond merchants in Antwerp. And because there was no business to be done, but they were started to manufacture and cut and polish diamonds. And somebody suggested, let's ask them, see whether you can work there. It was a small factory, dirty little place. And they said, we hadn't thought of it, but yes, it's a good idea. We could do somebody. And they gave me a broom to sweep out the factory. That's how I started and got into the diamond business. And that was the beginning. And I, that was my career. I stayed in the diamond business from starting with the broom until I worked for the Tanzanian government as one of their experts. We've already heard that um, Maria met her family again, even though at the beginning it was um, a strange encounter. Uh, but you only learned decades after the war what happened to your parents. I personally, yes. After the war, of course, when war was over, first thing you try and find out where, what, how. Of our whole family, which was a large family in Cologne, if I went on my bicycle, I could go any part of Cologne. I had an uncle, an aunt, a cousin, somebody. Only one cousin who was deported, at, who had left behind, still survived the war. Of all these people, so there were dozens My, my father's side, on my mother's side, there wasn't one survivor. They came from Gelsenkirchen. And uh, grandfather was quite a prominent man in the town. But not one of that family survived. Actually, one distant cousin is, went to Israel. That was a different story. Some people emigrated. But those that had remained in Germany, they were all murdered. So that is uh, quite a, a traumatic situation. So when we went to Germany, my son came along, and I took my grandchildren at various times. I said, you must come to Cologne to see that life did not start in Draycott Avenue in Kenton, in London. It, there was something before. At the local cemetery, my great-grandparents are buried there. The history of the family goes back I've got a family tree that goes back 500 years in Germany, living in the Rhineland all that time. So it's, uh, but anyway, they've seen it, they've been there, I've taken them there, so I said, you must know where, where it is. And in fact, my granddaughter, I don't know about grandson whether he has, have now got German passports, because it, it is a convenient, convenience rather, If they want to work in Europe, they could if they wanted to. They can move freely in Europe, whereas with a British passport it seems quite
quite a problem at the moment anyway for people to go over there, get permits, whatever. Have you ever considered moving back to Germany? No. It's, it's not an option. I lived here all my life, apart from the time I spent quite a few years in Africa. But, uh, no, it's, in fact, I must say this, until I discovered what happened to my parents, I didn't want to have anything to do with anything German. On principle, somehow, this is this was a fact. I didn't. I, I could still understand German, but I couldn't speak it anymore, and I didn't want to have anything to do with it. What have happened has happened. Nothing I can do about that. I can't put the clock back. But I didn't want to know. When I tried to go, when I heard what happened to my parents, that they had been deported from Cologne to Belarus, to Minsk, murdered there. I wanted to go there. We say Kaddish when somebody has passed away. That is the prayer in memory of somebody who's died. And I had to say, I said, I've got to have a closure. There was, there was no end to the story. To go to Belarus at the time was impossible. You couldn't get in because it was a communist closed country. You had to get an uh, invitation. Anyway, eventually, by somebody else, I did manage to get an invitation. The IBB of Dortmund, who have a connection over there, they invited me to come. I went over there. And uh, yes, I went to the place where it happened. It somehow gave me an end to the situation. At that time, it was a horrendous place. There was no memorial. It was in a wood. There was a, a rubbish dump there. But in the meantime, it's all been cleaned up. It's been it's a, a place of memorial. In fact, if you look at the history of Mali Trostenets of Minsk, it was the largest German extermination camp in, in Russia during the war. And nobody's ever heard of it. No, very few people, I don't know whether anybody here has heard of it. Mali Trostenets is slowly coming, become a, a concept, but it wasn't known before. Minsk, yes, Minsk was a large ghetto. Minsk, there's still uh, some survivors who had lived in the ghetto during the war. But in general terms, Mali Trostenets as such was never heard of. Now it has become known well with this war in Ukraine and so on. Things have come to a halt. It'll, it'll change again. You have both been very active in um, helping to remember what happened and to, in education. So you've both been back to Germany talking in schools with German children. What are your experiences, Maria? Yes, we, um, Hamburg Start um, it has invited over the years any, any kinder back to and treated us extremely well. We stayed there in a very, very nice five-star hotel and we were taken around. And, but they just asked us to do one thing. And that one thing was, um, would we talk to some school children of 15 about our experiences? And I said, well, yes, okay, fine. So 
um, we went to the school and all these 15-year-old girls were sitting around us and they were sniggering and I thought this is going to be really good. So I started talking and they were nudging each other and they were bored and I was telling them about my, my experience. But by the time I'd finished, they were in tears. So you had the impression your message had been heard. Yes. Yes. Kurt, you have been to Germany several times to talk to children. What 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 was your impression of it? And I mean, thinking of you are of a blessed age, what will happen afterwards? Well, I've spoken to several groups of children in Germany. Firstly, I found they are very well educated about that period. They know much more than our children here about Holocaust, about what happened. They know their parents and grandparents either don't know or don't want to talk about it. But what, we were, what I was told, if you tell them, they will go home and tell their parents. Uh, some things they can understand, some things they don't understand. For just an example, we were not allowed to go to the local swimming pool. When I was learning how to swim, I went to the swimming pool and said, Juden unerwünscht or nicht erlaubt or whatever it said. So you couldn't go, wouldn't be, couldn't go swimming anymore. And that is an interesting thing. They could not understand why we were not allowed to go into the swimming pool. It was very difficult for the children to understand this. And uh, there was one little boy, apparently, I told him my story. And a year or so later, one of their teachers was telling them about the refugees. They were talking about refugees that were coming into Germany from Syria or from wherever. And he put up his hand, he says, I know a refugee. So the teacher was very interested. Yes, who was that? He, he said that he met one, and it was me. You said the, um, the boy in the school made the connection between the concept of a refugee, so yes. you being one and refugees in Germany nowadays. Do you follow politics in Germany and uh, what do you think when you hear like the AFD in Eastern Germany well, having like 25% support? Well, it's, it's, the thing is that in the end, do we ever learn? I don't think we do. People aren't interested. What has happened before? Does it teach us anything? I don't know. Uh, they used to say, do you forgive? He says, says, we can't forget. It has happened, we can't forgive. It, it's something that has happened. The people who were the culprits, who were the uh, people who committed these atrocities are not around anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough, and I would have to be quite a bit older than I am to have been part of this. So, uh, what shook me, I was saying before, I didn't want to have anything to do with anything German. So when I went to Russia, to this, with this German group, I was very, very reluctant, and I was quite amazed. They were all such nice people. 
There's one gentleman there, he'd been the mayor of Bremen, very tall man. We had breakfast together. And one of my old school friends was a year or so old, there was an American army. And he was a major in the American army. And after the war, the Americans put an officer in charge of a city in the first arrangements they made. And so I asked this gentleman, did you know Fritz Bauchwitz? Yes, Fritz, of course, he's a good friend of mine. So there's suddenly a new generation who is a friend of a friend of mine. You know, it's a different concept altogether. Um, before we wrap up, one um, glance on the situation in Britain. Um, um, I started with explaining that it was a very quick decision from the British Parliament at that time to allow the kinder transport. And I mean, if you look now at um, British politics, how people who are obviously in trouble um, are perhaps not welcome, what does that make you think? It makes me very thankful that I was taken in. Yes, I had to follow the rules, for instance, between going from one place to another. If I went on my day off uh, from, from uh, Croydon to back home to Beckenham, I had to go to the local police station every time to report I was 17 years old. And then, then, then I went to, the, to my local police station when I got back to Beckenham, and I had to do that, and I did it for month and month and month because that was part of that's what you had to do. You, we could not move around, and what harm would I have done? What, what do you think? These people who want to come here, they must be desperate to come. Who would take a chance to go across the channel in small boats? But at the same time, you have a situation which is... There is no solution to it. Britain can't open its door and says, please come in. There isn't enough housing. It is a logistic problem. It's a very difficult. In, in our time, we came, our parents couldn't come here. Yeah. The doors were closed. We, it was an exception. We were, when we came, I, I still have the document. It says, you're allowed to come into Britain until you are 16. You're not allowed to take an, any job, paid or unpaid and after that you're expected to leave. So we were extremely fortunate at the time there was pressure put on government. Um, there's the old story, I don't know how true it is, with Chamberlain when he was approached to allow these children to come here. He was apparently, possibly anti-Semite. And his re reply was, we don't really like these people, but I suppose we have to help. That was an attitude. And that was, I'm afraid, the attitude at the time. And the problem is the same, only much greater today, because there are thousands of people who are desperate to get out from wherever they are, whether it's Africa or the Middle East or Far East for that matter. So it is a much greater problem. And we were fortunate that at the time 
were able to come and was still here to tell the story. Yes, that was very impressive. Maria Ault, Kurt Marx, thank you for taking your time and sharing your memories and thoughts with us and for tirelessly keeping up with educating younger generations on what never must be forgotten. And before we wrap up, let's once more listen to Michael Newman, CEO of the Association of Jewish Refugees, AJR, who tells us about some of your fellow kinder and the contribution they made to British public life. In the case of the kinder, most of them did not go back, but some went to Palestine and became Israel, some went to America, but those who stayed have made enormous contribution, disproportionate contribution to British life. And again, it shows the, um, the advantage of bringing people to safety and the advantage to a new country that refugees can make. If you think today about Lord Dubbs, Alf Dubbs, the only former Kint as a member of the House of Lords who used, uses, continues to use his example uh, to speak out on refugee migration and asylum issues. There was Sir Eric Reich, who was a f did an enormous amount to raise funds for charities. And you think about people like Dame Stephanie Shirley, who was an entrepreneur and, and paved the way for women in technology. Uh, and Lady Milena Grenfell Baines, who came on a Czech, uh, Czechoslovakian transport with Sir Nicholas Winton. There are a huge number of people who made a a disproportionate contribution to British life.